Father, thank you for another day. Thank you for the opportunity to come together, worship you, to learn from your word, and just open our eyes to the truths regarding your Holy Spirit, and pray that it would grow our awe of you, our love for you, and um, our ability to worship you rightly. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So, last week, we considered the evidence in Scripture that confirms the fact that the Holy Spirit is a person. He's a person, just as God the Father is a person, just as God the Son is a person. Holy Spirit is a person because he possesses intellect, emotion, and will. The biblical grammar also affirms his personhood in that the word pneuma is a neuter, noun, and yet personal masculine pronouns uh, are used to refer to him. He and his instead of it. His works also affirm his personhood. He hears, he speaks, he guides, he helps, he prays, he leads, he convicts, and he comforts. Those are things that a person does. They are not characteristic of an impersonal force or energy. And he's named in equal standing with the Father and the Son, which would also indicate his personhood. As they are persons, so is he a person. Now, today we're going to look at the biblical evidence for the deity of the Holy Spirit, the evidence that the Holy Spirit is fully God, just as the Father and the Son are fully God. We are also going to look at uh, the relationship um, within the Trinity between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit briefly, and we're going to also look at a concept known as procession, and we'll explain that a little bit more when we get to it. I did mention last week some of the heretical views in church history that denied the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's also been various heretical views that have denied his deity. They have denied and continue to deny that the Holy Spirit is fully God. Now, today I'm going to be reading a lot of Scripture, so bear with me. If you want to try and keep up, you can, but uh, all of the references are in the study guide, so you can check those later if you um, care to. So, One evidence in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is God is that he is identified as God. I'm sorry? You're not hearing it? Can you? Yeah. Maddie's going to work on that. Okay. Okay. Okay, where was I? One evidence in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is God is that he is identified as God or he is equated with God in a number of passages. One big one is Acts 5, 1 through 11, where Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira. says, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Peter first says to Ananias that he lied to the Holy Spirit, and then he says that he has not lied to man, but God. Peter is saying that lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God, which equates God and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and God are equal. They are the same. There's also a number of instances where the words or the works of God in the Old Testament are spoken of as from the Holy Spirit when we get to the New Testament. One example of that is Psalm 95, 7 through 11. I'm just going to read the Old Testament passage, and then you can look up the New Testament passage. But in Psalm 95, it says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So that's David in Psalm, in Psalm 95. And then when you get to Hebrews, the writer of uh, Hebrews quotes this passage almost verbatim, but he says that these are the words of the Holy Spirit. Now, another example of this is Isaiah 6, 8 through 9, says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Then Paul quotes this passage in Acts 28, 25 through 7, and this is what he says. They departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. So in Isaiah, it's Yahweh speaking, and in Acts, Paul says it's the Holy Spirit. This would again indicate that the Holy Spirit and Yahweh are the same. One more example is Jeremiah 31, 33 through 34. It says, but this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know Yahweh, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin, I will remember no more. That's Jeremiah. Then listen to what it says in Hebrews 10. 15 through 17. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, after the Holy Spirit says, 
This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he, the Holy Spirit, adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So, in Jeremiah, it's Yahweh speaking and making the covenant. In Hebrews, it's the Holy Spirit speaking and making the covenant. In Jeremiah, it's Yahweh who puts the law in their hearts and forgives sins. And in Hebrews, it's the Holy Spirit who puts the law in their hearts and forgives sins. The writer of Hebrews attributes the words to the Holy Spirit and thereby makes no distinction between God and the Holy Spirit. Rather, he equates the Holy Spirit with God. Those are just three examples where the Old Testament words or works of God, of Yahweh, are attributed to the Holy Spirit. Now, another proof for the deity of the Holy Spirit is that Christians are referred to as the new covenant temple of God. In the Old Testament, the temple was where the presence of God would dwell with Israel. And 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Excuse me. God's Spirit is another way of referring to the Holy Spirit. God dwells in the temple, and now God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in the temple of the believer. Romans 8.9 also affirms that. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So, Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ are equated with the Holy Spirit. Then, 2 Timothy 1.14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So, Holy Spirit who is equal to God, who is God, dwells in each believer, the temple of each believer. This is more evidence to the deity of the Holy Spirit, equating God with the Holy Spirit. Then in 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul explains the giving and empowerment of spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up the church, In verses 4 through 6, Spirit, the Lord, and God are all presented on an equal footing in building the church, and God is said to empower the gifts in verse 6. And then in verse 11, the Holy Spirit is identified as the one who gives and empowers the gifts. This, again, affirms the deity of the Holy Spirit by equating God with the Holy Spirit. Scripture also records the words of Jesus in Mark 3.29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That's also found in Matthew 12 and Luke 12. The reason this is evidence for the Holy Spirit uh, as deity is because blasphemy can only be against God. Webster's definition of blasphemy is the act of insulting or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. So in order to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, 
he must be God. And I don't think Jesus could have made a mistake on that point. Another line of proofs are the attributes or perfections of the Holy Spirit that are exclusive to deity. Mere creatures do not possess these attributes. And the first of those would be the eternality of the Holy Spirit. And we talked about that last week in regards uh, to the heretical points made by Arius, uh, that the Holy Spirit did not always exist, but was created at a certain point in time. Hebrews 9.14, however, would disagree with that point made by Arius. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God? It says the eternal spirit, not a created or temporal spirit. Then the spirit also is said to be the spirit of glory in 1 Peter 4.14. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Not only is the spirit said to possess glory, but the passage uh, equates the Holy Spirit and God. And it's significant because only God is said to possess glory and he shares it with no one. Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. So in order for the Holy Spirit to be the spirit of glory, he must be God. Holy Spirit, of course, is identified as holy throughout the Old and New Testaments. Why we call him the Holy Spirit, because he's identified as the Holy Spirit. Psalm 51, 11, <clears throat> cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Matthew 1.18, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Romans 1.4, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> the reference to the Holy Spirit as the spirit of holiness would indicate that he is inherently holy rather than declared or set apart as holy to the Lord as were some things and people in Scripture. Spirit is also omniscient. He knows all things. Isaiah 40, 13 and 14 says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? <clears throat> These are all rhetorical questions where the answer is obvious. Everybody's supposed to know the answer to those questions. Um, and it's obvious because no one has taught or instructed the Spirit because He knows all things. So, of course, nobody taught Him or instructed Him. The Holy Spirit is omniscient. And in 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11, the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him, so also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So if you know the thoughts of God, you pretty much know everything there is to know because God is omniscient. So the Holy Spirit, who knows the thoughts of God, is omniscient. He knows all things. <clears throat> Another attribute of the Holy Spirit and of God is omnipresence. He's everywhere, all the time. Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee 
from your presence. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There is nowhere one can go in creation, heaven or hell, where the Spirit is not there. He is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is also omnipotent, all-powerful. That's seen in creation, in providence, giving life, in the birth of Christ. Genesis 1-2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We're going to talk more about that passage next week and the Holy Spirit's role in creation. Then Psalm 104.30 says, When you send forth your spirit, they are created. Luke 1.35, And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Only an omnipotent God can create and bring about a virgin birth. Now, related to the Holy Spirit's omnipotence, are the works or acts of the Holy Spirit that are acts that only God can do. Uh, These two that I've already mentioned, creation and virgin birth, are two of those acts. But also related um, is the giving of life, Job 33, 4. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Giving help or comfort like Jesus, John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And the meaning here is another helper of the same kind. In other words, uh, another one who can give help and comfort like God the Son. So that would require a divine helper as God the Son was divine, was God. And the Holy Spirit is also responsible for the inspiration of God's Word. 2 Peter 1, 20-21, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can also regenerate or bring the spiritually dead to life. John 3, 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit resurrected Jesus, brought him from death to life, and he will resurrect all believers, Romans 8, 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And the spirit is the one who sanctifies believers. Spirit transforms us from sinners into Christ-likeness. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. 
Now, a final proof of the deity of the Holy Spirit is the fact that on several occasions he's identified in conjunction with the Father and the Son uh, on equal standing with them. This was also evidence of his personhood that we addressed last week, the baptismal formula in Matthew 28, 19, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and the benediction in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So they are placed on equal standing. All of these varied forms of biblical evidence affirm the deity of the Holy Spirit. Old Testament words and works of God are identified in the New Testament as the words and works of the Holy Spirit. New Testament believers are identified as the temple of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. The building of the church, gifting and empowering of believers are the works of God, the Holy Spirit. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is blasphemy of God. And the attributes and actions that Scripture credits to the Holy Spirit are evidence that He is God, holy, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, creation, inspiration of Scripture, a helper like Jesus, giving life, bringing the dead to life, resurrection and sanctification. All of these are attributes and works of God, attributes and works of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is divine. He's God. Any questions? Good. We'll move on. Save them for later. Now, Let's consider the triune nature of God and the Holy Spirit's place in the Trinity. This gets a little tricky. So the Trinity is considered an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. If someone doesn't actually believe in the triunity of God, that God is three persons and yet one God, then that could not be considered true biblical or orthodox Christian faith. Let me read you a a portion of Crossway's doctrinal statement on the triune Godhead. This is under our beliefs on the website if you want to go check it. It says, the one true and living God exists eternally in three self-existent, uncreated persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of one and the same essence, equal in divine attributes, yet distinct in personality and function. Now, this is easily one of, if not the most difficult concept in Scripture to wrap our minds around. Three persons, of which the Holy Spirit is the third person, but all three persons separate and distinct, yet one God, not three gods. Just a few of the Scriptures that establish that there is only one God, Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Isaiah 45, 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. 1 Corinthians 8, 4. There is no God but one. Scripture makes very definitive statements that there is only one God, yet Scripture also establishes that there are three persons that are equally God, sharing the same attributes and essence. In other words, they share 
what distinguishes God from creation. They equally share what makes God, God. We know that from all that's revealed in Scripture concerning God the Father, all that's revealed in Scripture concerning God the Son, and we just looked at what Scripture says regarding God the Holy Spirit. All three are equally God, and yet they are separate and distinct. Now, there are some heretical views out there regarding the Trinity. Imagine. Um, One of those is known as modalism. That is a current heresy. This is the belief that God takes different forms, uh, different persons at different times. So at one point in time, it's God the Father. At another point in time, God the Spirit. Another point in time, God the Son. But they do not exist, coexist eternally. They do not coexist or they don't exist at the same time. You find this view in the Oneness Pentecostal sect. And I was doing some research. So T.D. Jakes is kind of the um, um, representative of Oneness Pentecostalism. But apparently, he has changed his view. So he no longer uh, denies the triunity of God. He no longer holds to that modalist point of view. Whether that's actually true or not, but... I found it on Google, so it must be true. I don't know. But anyway, the problem with the view is that it's virtually uh, impossible to support if you consider the whole counsel of God's Word. Uh, We already said there's an abundant evidence for the deity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there are many passages where the plurality of God is referred to. In the Old Testament, God uses plural pronouns to refer to himself. In Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. <clears throat> and he's not referring to angels in that. Genesis 3.22, then the Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Isaiah 6.8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So how can this be one God but three persons? I don't know. It just is. There's no detailed explanation of how it can be. But if you go back to Deuteronomy 6.4, just some more evidence for this plurality and oneness. It says the Lord is one. Uh, The Hebrew word translated as one has the meaning of unity in diversity, like the evening and the morning were one day or a husband and wife who are one flesh. That, along with many other texts uh, that differentiate between the members of the Trinity but place them on equal standing, such as those passages we've already looked at, Matthew 28, 19, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, all of those support the idea of oneness yet plurality. <clears throat> and then uh, a passage that the modalists have real difficulty with is where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are pictured together at one time, but separate. That's Matthew 3, 16 through 17 at uh, the baptism of Jesus. Uh, It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. So you had Jesus there, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove 
So Jesus and the Holy Spirit are there. Holy Spirit comes to rest on him in the form of a dove. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is there physically, Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, alights on Jesus' shoulder, and uh, the Father speaks from heaven. So very difficult for the modalists to separate this. So what they say is that this scene is just symbolic and not actual. And they use that same rationalization for other passages where two or more persons at once are indicated, like when Jesus prays to the Father or asks the Father to forgive while he's on the cross. And they are just that. They're just rational, rationalizations not supported by any good hermeneutic. <clears throat> Finally, you have Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. I'm not going to read through that, but it reveals the work of each member of the Trinity in redemption and salvation of believers. Verses 3 through 6, you're going to look at this later. Verses 3 through 6 uh, indicates the work of the Father. 7 through 12, the work of the Son. And then 13 and 14, the work of the Spirit. So, Scripture shows us that God is one, but three separate and distinct persons. Now, I've included in that study guide an illustration which is drawn from, from the Athanasian Creed, which affirms seven basic truths regarding uh, the triune Godhead, the three-in-one. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Son is not the Holy Spirit. There is exactly one God. I forgot, I was going to have a t-shirt that has that illustration on. I was going to wear it this morning, I forgot, but next week. So there is exactly one God <clears throat> in three persons. Summary of those truths would be there is one God, one in essence, and eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just like it says on our website. And the last thing we'll briefly consider today is how the members of the Godhead relate to each other. As with the Trinity, this is not something that we can fully comprehend, and Scripture does not give us detailed explanations. It simply states certain truths and leaves it at that. We have to accept and believe what is revealed in Scripture, even if we can't understand it, and that's often the case because we are finite, and we have a finite perspective <clears throat> on things that are infinite. I'm going to go and try, I'm going to try and summarize uh, this and simplify it a little bit. It's from the explanation given in MacArthur's Systematic Theology. So, Scripture identifies the first person of the Trinity as the Father, which attributes paternity or fatherhood to him in relation to God the Son. And calling the second person of the Trinity the Son attributes sonship to him in relation to God the Father. And of the Trinity, <clears throat> I'm sorry, and the Son is eternally begotten or generated by the Father. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, Scripture attributes procession from the Father and the Son. He eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Scripture does not explain or define this term. 
precedes or procession. But Scripture does not say that the Spirit is begotten or created. It makes a clear distinction between the relationship of the Father and the Son, which is begotten, and the Spirit, which precedes. John 3.16 speaks of the Son as begotten. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus uses the term proceeds regarding the Holy Spirit in John 15, 26. When the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So that's not a theological term that theologians came up with. It's the term that Jesus uses. Now, that the Spirit proceeds from the Son as well as drawn from the passages that speak about Jesus sending the Spirit and breathing the Spirit onto the disciples. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In John 20, 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. And the fact that Jesus sends or breathes out the Holy Spirit does seem to indicate a certain authority that the Son has within the Trinity. However, although the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, this does not mean that the Spirit is any less God or in any way inferior to the Father or the Son just as the fact that the Son is eternally begotten or generated by the Father does not mean that the Son is any less God than the Father or the Holy Spirit. The differences in relationship, begotten, generated, or proceeding, has no bearing on their essence, what makes them God. Their attributes, their glory, their majesty are all equal. Now, these eternal relationships of begotten and procession within the Trinity also appear to impact or produce a certain order in regards to the external works of the members of the Trinity. One example of this would be in redemption. The Father is primarily seen as creator, 1 Peter 4, 19. The Son is primarily seen as the Redeemer mediator, Romans 3.24 and 1 Timothy 2.5. And the Holy Spirit is primarily seen as the agent of sanctification. Oh, let me read that. 1 Peter 1.2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for sprinkling with his blood. So, agent of sanctification, but that's also a passage that uh, identifies all three members of the Trinity involved. Now, in regards to the external works of the Trinity and the distinct roles that each member functions in, they work together inseparably and with unity of purpose, unity of thought and action. John 14, 10 Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is Jesus speaking. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. In John 16, 14, uh, speaking about the Spirit, 
He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It can also be said that just as the internal essence of the Trinity is undivided, God is one, so the external works are also undivided in that all members are involved in all aspects of all external works. Because we talked about the fact that um, the Father is primary in creation, the Son primary in redemption and mediation, Holy Spirit primary in sanctification, but there are passages that attribute creation to the Son and to the Spirit. And there are passages that attribute redemption to the Father and to the Spirit. And there are passages that attribute sanctification to the Father and the Son. So even though one or the other member may have a primary role or responsibility in those works, they are all involved. So that is a summary of the Trinity and the Holy Spirit's relationship within the Trinity. Quick summary of the deity of the Holy Spirit. Simply put, the words, works, and attributes of God are also the words, works, and attributes of the Holy Spirit. Now, any questions? Yes. Oh, unity of purpose, thought, and action. Yes. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to address that passage in particular in a couple of weeks when we get to um, Holy Spirit and eschatology. Okay. Yes, sir. Yeah. Begotten, um, the other word that would be synonymous with that is generation. Doesn't mean he was born. He's eternally generated, and it doesn't explain what that means. Um, just like procession. Eternally generated. He eternally begotten, generated from the Father. So. Yeah, well, it indicates relationship, yeah. So. All right, you're dismissed.